Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at stmose, that's S-A-I-N-T-M-O-S dot org. Now, let's continue with the podcast. Let me read for you. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home. After telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves. About three o'clock in the morning, that's the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. He intended to go past them, curious. But when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. They were all terrified when they saw him, but Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. It's I. I am here. Then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. After they'd crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret. They brought the boat to the shore and climbed out. The people recognized Jesus at once, and they ran throughout the whole area, carrying sick people on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they brought the sick out to the marketplaces. They begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe, and all who touched him were healed. Let me pray. Father, I just uh, welcome you here. We've invited you in our song, Holy Spirit. You are present here. So I just ask you, because I believe that you've inspired these words to be written, and I believe you are alive and active today. It only makes sense to ask you, come illuminate our hearts. Come give us imagination to get into this text. Come do whatever in our lives you need to do so that we can hear your voice this morning, your authoritative, compassionate voice to us. So if that is healing wounds that we have, would you bring your balm? Father, if that is energizing us or giving us a little gentle kick in the backside to nudge us on, exhort us, would you do that in your mercy this morning? If that is humbling us so that we can submit ourselves to your authority, would you do that gift for us this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you remember Magic Eyes. Do you guys remember Magic Eyes? They were a big deal in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Sorry, millennials, you did miss out. They were a real treat. I have distinct memories of being in my Aunt Beth's home office. She was an early adopter, and so there was a giant poster on the wall of her home office. And I remember looking at it, and all I saw was sort of a a pretty ordinary, slightly jarring pattern of repeating shapes. It wasn't, frankly, that attractive, but I knew that when my aunt looked at this same poster, she saw in it something I couldn't see. She saw three-dimensional dolphins leaping in this poster. And I remember sessions 
I'm standing in front of this magic eye poster, squinting my eyes, pressing my skull, sticking my nose up against the poster, backing up to the back wall to try to see more than I could see. And eventually, of course, I realized that you have to change the focal length that you are looking at. You don't look just at the face of the poster, but you shift the focal length of your eyes so that the real nature of the poster comes into clear view. What if it were possible to have significant exposure to Jesus and still not be able to see the nature of who he is until some sort of shift happens in the eyes of our hearts, until some sort of focal length adjustment happens here in the core of who we are so that we can see him for who he is. If that were the case how badly would you want that shift to occur? How hungry would you be to be able to see him for who he really is? This is your first or second Sunday with us. I want to let you know we are in the Gospel of Mark. You have joined us at a great time. We are galloping through this shortest of the four tellings of the life of Jesus in the Bible. It's the shortest, and it's also probably the earliest. And you've joined at a great time because Mark has these two driving questions that run right the way through his telling of the life of Jesus, and they're going to surface in some form or another each Sunday until Easter. And those questions are this, who is Jesus really? Who is he? They call him rabbi. Is he, is he a teacher? Yes. Is he, is he a miracle worker? Yeah, for sure. Is he a sage? Is he a revolutionary? Who is Jesus really? And the second one flows out of the first. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to follow him? I say that because if you are here just checking Jesus out for the first time, not really sure what to make of him, I want to I honor you. That is, that is huge. There, there are no like cultural pressures to make you show up to church in 2020. Uh, So that's courageous to be here. Well done. And similarly, if you have been around Jesus forever, if you've spent your life in the church, maybe you've even associated yourself with his name, I hope that the next few weeks help us to hear afresh this invitation that Jesus issues to us. Come, follow me. Come, follow me follow me. We're in the back half of chapter 6 this morning. So far, there is mounting opposition to Jesus. Actually, in chapter 3, things took a sinister slant so much that there is a hit out on Jesus of sorts, a, a hit. And it wasn't put there by the atheists or by secularists, people trying to shut Jesus up. The hit was called by religious people. which ought to give me pause in my profession. It was called by religious people, and in the light of this mounting opposition, Jesus has responded in two ways. Firstly, Jesus has begun to teach in parables. Parables, you'll remember, are 
tidy, uh, useful stories drawn from everyday life that simultaneously reveal something about the nature of the kingdom of God. We can put that slide up. Sorry, I'm not using my clicker. Uh, And simultaneously reveal something about the heart of the hearer. That's what parables do. Remember chapter 4, the parable of the soils. So he's begun to teach in parables, and at the same time, he started to do what we call mighty deeds, miraculous things. We most of the time would just call them miracles. John, in his telling of the life of Jesus, calls them signs, which is a useful clue to us, because they are functioning almost just like the parables. The whole point of these incredible things that Jesus does is to reveal something about the identity of the person doing them, and at the same time, it shines a searchlight on the heart of the people who are observing these mighty things done. Parables and mighty deeds reveal something about who Jesus is, and they also unmask the hearts of people who witness them. And there's rising opposition to Jesus, and these mighty deeds come to a head earlier in our chapter, chapter 6. And Doyle did such a wonderful job preaching on this last week. We see the rising opposition in the form of self-styled king and civic leader Herod. Remember this? He throws a a sort of party, a a nepotistic little party for his cronies, projecting power and self-importance. And in this moment of sort of debauched narcissism and a kind of party favor, he ends up executing John the Baptist, Jesus' first cousin and outspoken supporter. And that feast... begins, as Doyle helped us to see, begins to look all the more repugnant when it is cast against the feast that Jesus hosts. A feast feeding 5,000 and more in the wilderness. No VIP lounge, no treachery, no self-projected power, just, just prodigious compassion. Prodigious compassion and miraculous provision for all who would come to be with Jesus in the wilderness. Feeds 5,000. And it's right on the heels of that that our story happens, right? The, his, Jesus' inner circle, his apprentices or disciples are, are probably exhausted, and so he sends them in the boat across the lake. He says, get in the boat, go to Bethsaida which was the hometown of Philip and uh, Simon and Andrew just across the top of the lake there. And Jesus, on his own, takes care of saying goodbye to the crowd and dispersing them. And I think Jesus is doing this partly because he cares about these exhausted friends of his, right? He has modeled all along through this telling of the life of Jesus and the others the importance of time to time retreating to be on your own, to have face-to-face or or, uh, um, solitude and communion with the Father. He's done this in chapter 1. He does this now. He does this again in the Olive Garden right before he's betrayed. He models this to his followers, but I think he's actually engineering something special here. He tells them to get in the boat and he remains behind. 
I think Jesus is setting up a special teaching scene here, and that wouldn't be all that surprising if you think about it. Because remember, right from the beginning, although he's taught the masses, he'll often linger and spend special time with his disciples afterwards, unpacking the parables to them, staying with them until they get it, explaining. He cares that they understand. He invites them in and invests in them, and he does so for you too. If you're his follower, he pulls you close. He wants you to understand. So he sends them across the, across the lake. He then goes up in the hills above the lake to pray. A storm whips up that night, and it says he sees them struggling against the waves, rowing and yet being blasted backwards. I've stood in the hills above that lake, and you can see boats in the middle of it. If you have really good vision or if those boats get blown close to the edge, there's a chance you could actually make out the people in the boat struggling against the waves. But this is nighttime. This is nighttime. And I think Mark is inviting us here in, in, in Jesus' seeing of his disciples struggling in the middle of the night to see ourselves that Jesus cares for these people. He's not physically with them. They're in a situation, a sort of test that he has engineered for them, and they are afraid. He's not afraid for them, but he cares that they are afraid. Their fear is not lost on him, and maybe for a few of us, that truth needs to be trickle-charged back into our souls this morning. You might not see Jesus right next to you and what you're going through, but he sees your fear. He sees your struggle. He sees you straining at the oars and getting blasted backwards, and he cares. He cares. And I love this, verse 48. It says, Jesus came to them walking on the water. Walking on the water. It's hard. It's, it's hard for us to hear that, like to really hear that because, because Christian themes have become so common and so like domesticated in our culture. That's like a meme walking on the water. Like that's the punchline to some tired joke about an arrogant guy. Like, oh yeah, he thinks he walks on the water. Like I, I looked this up this week. There are actually dozens of gifts for the phrase walking on the water. Like we just, we can't hear that because it's just, It's just this commonplace for us. And I think it's all too easy for us as thoughtful, rational Baltimoreans in 2020 to sit a little bit smugly as we read this scene and to think, isn't that cute? Those credulous pre-moderns, like they see a miracle behind every bush. But remember... Remember what these mighty deeds do? They shine a searchlight on the heart of the people who are witnessing them. And if we just step back for a moment and let this text speak to us, it doesn't actually read like a bunch of credulous, superstitious people who see a miracle behind every bush, right? These people probably had not memorized Archimedes' principle in middle school science. They probably didn't understand about hydrogen bonds and surface tension. 
like you probably do, but they were fishermen. They knew you can't walk on the surface of the water. That's what boats are for. And the boat they were in right now was struggling itself. And when they see Jesus, they're not like, oh yeah, miracle, here we go. They cannot make sense of it. They see it with their eyes and they don't know what to do with it because they were not expecting this. They don't have a category for it. They're not particularly credulous human beings. This blows their categories. In fact, they think he's a ghost. Jesus comes to them walking on the water and it says back half of verse 48 that he intended to pass them by. I think that's funny. Like what what would what would that have been like? They're white knuckled at the oars, like in the fight of their lives, and Jesus just sashays past. <laughs> See you at breakfast. Get, what? What's going on? Where where have you heard that phrase before? Does that, I mean for those of you who have been around the Bible a little bit, the, that phrase pass by, is that ringing any bells to you? Think Moses. Think think the wilderness. Remember, Moses has been called by God to lead the Hebrews out of enslavement into a land that God has promised to give them. God's spirit is with them, guiding them and providing for them in the desert, especially bread in the middle of the wilderness. Ringing any bells? And then Moses says to God, God, I will not go another inch unless you're going with us. The only thing that makes us different from anybody else, the only thing that protects us, the only thing that sets us apart, the only thing that gives me hope is you with us. I want to see you. I want to see who you are. And this incredibly poignant, unprecedented scene in the Bible, Exodus chapter 33, God says to Moses, all right, all right. I'm going to stick you in the cleft of a rock and I will protect you from the raw power of my glory and my unimaginable power as I, what? Pass by. As I pass by, as I reveal something of my nature to you and proclaim my name, Yahweh, which means here I am or it is I. Some of you already see where this is going. Some of you already see where this is going. And you aren't surprised then that when Jesus sees them in their fear and they think he's a ghost, he says to them, do not be afraid as he strides on the water, passing them by revealing to them something of his nature and says, do not be afraid. Same words, it is I. It is I. But they don't have a category for it. Like, they don't get it. Earlier, these disciples have seen Jesus do incredible things, mighty deeds. They've seen him heal diseases, They've seen him expel evil spirits. They've seen him, even in chapter 5, raise a little girl temporarily from the dead. And it says in that instance, chapter 5, that they were 
amazed with a great amazement. And this time in verse 50, it tells us they were amazed even more than that. They were amazed beyond measure. They were amazed beyond measure. Because see, they, they had in their cultural memory, they had stories of miraculous prophets, Elisha and Elijah, who had been able to heal people, even who had been able to temporarily raise people from the dead, but they do not have a category for a human who does this. They'd just seen Jesus in the previous scene. They, they had been with him when he provided miraculously for these crowds. And the text tells us they did not understand the meaning of the loaves, the significance of the miracle of the loaves. See, see, they'd been with Jesus picking up 12 baskets full of surplus after this miraculous provision for people who had followed him into the wilderness. They have seen Jesus routinely like a, a, a champagne that's too bubbly for the bottle bursting past the expectations of any sort of human rescuer, but they don't have a category for a human who does this. The only person who does this is one in the stories of Israel. There's only one whose spirit plays above the waters at creation. There's, there's only one, only one who's able to plow a path of dry land through the Red Sea for his people to walk on and through the Jordan for his people to cross over. And so in their great national poet, Job, he says it this way, they all would have known. We have Job text, Job chapter 8, 9, verses 7 through 10. If he commands, this is Job talking about God, the sun won't rise and the stars won't shine. He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. He made all the stars, the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, the constellation of the southern sky. He does great things, too marvelous to understand. He performs countless miracles. He alone spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. The same language is picked up in the Psalms. I think we've got a Psalm text there. It's picked up all the way through Isaiah, which is always in the background for Mark. There's one who shows this sort of complete mastery over creation. We're in a fun stage now where our oldest two are learning to tell jokes. They told me I could tell you. Um, they began with knock-knock jokes, and they hit a speed bump early on when they tried it on my mom. Uh, Dex said, hey, Grandma, knock-knock. And she goes, oh, fun. Uh, come in. Kenneth and I are making a lot more sense to you now. We grew up under a rock. <laughs> Once we got grandmom sorted out, they continued to develop their uh, repertoire of jokes, and they have a ton that they love now. And Isla, one of her favorites, goes like this. Why can't you give Elsa a balloon? Because she'll let it go. Get it? <laughs> and that last line, get it? She, it just blesses me, and she tacks it on to every joke she tells, even jokes that she makes up, which don't, you know, always have something to get. <laughs> and that delightful little question, I hear it right at the heart of this scene. Because in verse 52, it says, they didn't, recognized Jesus because they didn't understand the significance of the loaves. Why? Is it because they weren't bright enough? 
as if seeing Jesus were mainly a Rubik's cube of the mind? I don't think so. I don't think so. My guess is some of this motley crew could even have graduated Blue Jays. It says they didn't get it because their hearts were too hard to take it in. What do you make of that? Does that sound familiar to you? When I think of hard hearts, my mind goes here. Maybe yours does too. My mind goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who the Bible in Exodus tells us his heart was hard. He hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. His heart was hard. So he resisted God's command to let the Hebrew people go out of enslavement to worship God. And I'm pretty comfortable with that being the paradigm of a hard heart. Because I like to think I don't look a lot like Pharaoh. But that can't possibly be the paradigm that Mark has in mind here. Because remember who he's talking about. Whatever he means by their hearts were too hard to take it in, he is referring to people who have given up their professions to follow Jesus. Are you hearing it? He's talking about people who have left the safety of their homes, a steady income probably, and relative comfort in order to go on the road with a marked man. Are you hearing this? Hard hearts. Whatever he means by hard hearts, he he is talking about people who have given significant time of their life to being with Jesus, to sitting under his Jesus, under his teaching, to absorbing his teaching, and to adopting his lifestyle. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. What, whatever he means by hard hearts, he is talking about people who have, at Jesus' command, gone out themselves on excursions to spread the message of the kingdom and the love of Jesus. A great personal risk. And I can't see what the searchlight of this mighty deed is revealing in your heart right now, but I can give you a little glimpse into mine. That makes me sit up. That makes me sit up. Because whatever he meant by hard hearts that wouldn't take it in, he was referring to a band of 12 apprentices who more than anyone else in that entire culture were associated with the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that makes me sit up because I think I'm someone who's associated with the name of Jesus. I'm a professional Jesus person, as repugnant as that phrase is. (laughs) I've given up some things to obey Jesus, to follow Jesus. I've given some time to listening to Jesus, trying to learn what Jesus teaches. And more than the average person in our culture in Baltimore in 2020, I am associated with the name of Jesus of Nazareth, could it be that there is still calcification in my heart that prevents me from seeing Jesus for who he truly is? I don't, 
I, I don't mean just like cognitive assent to who he is. I don't mean just like verbal statement. I could say all day long, and I do say, Jesus is the king of kings. He is in the words of Paul in Colossians 1.16. He is the one through whom and for whom everything was made. That's why when he gets into the boat, he doesn't even have to say, waves obey. You ever seen a police dog that's the picture of ferocious power until its handler steps onto the scene and submission. I can say all day long, Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I can say he is the creator come among the creatures, but it's not primarily about verbal assent. It's about, are there parts of my heart that are still resisting acknowledging that Jesus is who he is so that I fail to see who he is? I actually don't recognize him. Could it be that there are parts of our hearts that are still leathery enough that we, in moments of crisis, don't recognize Jesus? We call him a ghost, and instead we white-knuckle row on whatever we functionally trust in at that moment. Could it be that our hearts of this calcification. I want to spend just a moment here for all of us prodding around a bit in our hearts. Not as a way of like grading yourself against the other people here. Nobody's asking you to put your hands up. But these are questions that you could run through in your own heart. And I just want you to attend to the way your heart reacts to these questions. So imagine... Imagine you are one of the 12. You're one of the the apprentices of Jesus. Imagine you're doing life with him. How does your heart respond to these scenarios? In which case would you feel like, oh, I might want to return to what I know and trust? Is it when Jesus is hanging out with commercial sex workers and you think, wow, how could he? I don't want to be associated with that. Doesn't he have standards? Or how about when, if Jesus asks you or one of your friends to to live a life of celibacy? It's just Jesus. It's eighty thirty-seven. That's just not reasonable. How about when Jesus hangs out with people whose resumes indicate that they probably aren't going to help out his cause much? They're certainly not going to help you achieve what you're hoping to get done. Is that when you think, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a different, we're, we're going we're to go a different direction here, Jesus. Or the other end of the spectrum, is it when Jesus shows profound generosity of spirit and compassion toward elites? What? What? I thought you were one of the people. Is it when you find out that you will die before you ever see X happen? Man. I jumped on this train when I thought you were the one who would deliver X. Is it when Jesus takes all of those 
cultural practices and religious practices and things around which your identity is formed and redraws them or relativizes them, does that make you uncomfortable enough that you think, oh, I'm going to roll with a different crew here? Is it when your political views for the way the country, the nation should flourish, Jesus tacitly or explicitly rejects? Ooh, all right, Jesus. I thought we were on the same page here. Is it when Jesus says, hey, I'm headed towards a cross and you too will suffer? Remember John the Baptist? His head ended up on a plate. Similarly grisly fate awaits. Is it when... Jesus points to the people or persons or group that you find most insufferable and says, take a, take a, a basin and a cloth and go wash some feet. Is it when he never does the thing that you have most been hoping he would do when you first jumped on the bandwagon? I encourage you just uh, take a screenshot of those or, or do whatever you need to do to be able to reflect on those this afternoon or this week and just attend to what your heart reacts to. Don't become self-critical in a flagellating way, but pay attention to what your heart reacts to, and it could be that you are finding little leathery bits, little ossified bits of your heart as I am, and you just invite Jesus Would you come shine your light here? Come pass by here, reveal more of your identity to me here. Let's jump back to the way the story ends. It says Jesus gets in the boat with them and immediately they're able to cross the lake and they land at Gennesaret. Interestingly, not the place they set out for. Which in my mind makes me think, yes, this was a situation that Jesus engineered so that he could do something special for his followers. Help them see who he is. And the boat, it says, lands at the shore, and immediately the people on the shore, unnamed masses, again, recognize him, and they begin to bring their sick, their friends, their loved ones to Jesus. And I think Mark is winking at us here, right? Lands on the shore, and immediately the unnamed masses recognize Jesus when the people who have been doing life with him call him a ghost. And there's this beautiful, sort of poignant, earnest, childlike receptivity that you see. People don't have a theological category for Jesus. They haven't seen the water striding. They don't haven't connected it with Job. They're not thinking this is the creator come among us. They just know their need and they almost instinctively recognize Jesus' authority and they just bring their brokenness to be in his presence. They bring the brokenness of their friends to bring it under the sway of his loving authority so that even touching the hem of his robe, verse 56 says, and they were all healed. All who came to him, all who brought their brokenness under the compassionate, loving authority of Jesus were healed. And this is 
helpful indication of where we're going. Because for the next couple of weeks, Jesus gets into talking about purity. What is it that makes a person pure? What is it that makes a person impure? He gets into talking about marriage and sexual ethics and these things that go to the heart for his hearers then and for us today of who we are and what we hold most dear. And the question on the table for them and for us the next few weeks is, does Jesus have the authority to redraw some of the things that I hold most dear? Does the one who strides upon the waves have the authority to challenge notions that I have built my life around or that I am aiming for? Does the one who protects his own in the midst of the storm, who commits to passing by them to reveal some of his character, who, who calms a storm without a word, does he have the right in our lives to mess with some of the categories around which our identity is built? Are we going to recognize that right? Remember the parable, chapter 4, the parable of the soils. Where are those words going to fall on soil where they are quickly snatched away? Or in soil that we're so busy it gets choked out by all the other good competing voices? So whether this is your very first time checking out Jesus, and you're just here to kind of try to make sense of who he is, or whether you've been calling yourself a Christian, associating with the name of Jesus from your diaper days. How tender is your heart? How ready are you to cede to him the authority that he already has, that is rightfully his, to show us the way to really living. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, uh, the choir, you guys can retake your places and then I'll lead us into communion. Father, would you come among us and by your spirit do what I can't do with words? Shine the searchlight on our hearts. And in your mercy, your tender mercy, help us to see you more clearly. This is just chapter 6. Jesus doesn't give up on his stony-hearted disciples. He stays with them. He patiently reveals more and more of who he is and explains and gives them second and third and 47th chances. So, Father, would you be patient with us as we submit our hearts to your compassionate authority. In Jesus' name, amen. The way we celebrate communion here is in stations. We have one station at the head of each aisle and one station at the back under the balcony and one station up in the boardroom behind the balcony. This station will have grape juice. All three stations, all the, the other three stations have wine and all four stations have gluten-free bread. So just come to whichever station makes sense for you. The way we do it is you just make a little semicircle around the servers, say two to nine people. Come not just with those who live under your roof, but with others, other followers of Jesus in your new family. Make a semicircle, and the first server will give you a pinch of bread, and you hold on to that until the second server comes with the cup, and then you dip 